Bill Conway, a Democratic candidate for the Montgomery County Council at large, calls for a cultural change in the halls of the Montgomery County Council. He wishes his change to be what he says is lacking in the national conversation, which he describes as a culture of evidence and a climate of civility, and that's, that's what I would always work for. Stay tuned to hear more from Bill Conway in just a moment. Hello, and welcome to Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we have been interviewing politicians, activists, advocates, and others since 2016 with the intention of ennobling public service, creating a platform for positive civil discourse, and facilitating dialogue with difference. This show is the antidote for those who are tired of hearing about what's going wrong with the world. We showcase people just like you who are working to leave the world better than they found it. And that's good news. And now a word from former President John F. Kennedy with his views on public service. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I'll remind you that this show is made possible by viewers like you. If you appreciate what we're doing here at Public Interest Podcast and enjoy this episode, please contribute $1 at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. We are here today with Bill Conway, Democratic candidate for Montgomery County Council at Large and former senior counsel at the United States Senate Committee on Energy and Natural Resources. Bill's a former senior vice president and chief legal officer of Illinova Corp and is an entrepreneur in the electric industry as well as a former partner in major law firms. Bill, thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Great. Great to be here, Jordan. Perfect. The first question I'd like to pose to you is what are you currently doing or what have you ever done to advance the public interest and why? Uh, Well, let's see. Uh, My wife and I have lived here. Well, I've been in Montgomery County for 30 years. We've been here in Potomac for about 22 years. And during that time, she and I have been very actively engaged in civic and political affairs. Uh, I couldn't begin to tell you the number of fundraisers we've done here for various political candidates. But in the civic sphere, uh, let's see, I've been, I was one of the founding members of the Montgomery Countryside Alliance, one of the founding members of the Sino Canal Trust. Uh, I used to be a house captain for rebuilding together, doing uh, low-income housing. Uh, I've served on the boards of the Montgomery County Historical Society for a long time, and I recently stepped down as uh, chair of uh, Washington Revels, um, lots of other volunteer stuff. So we've been pretty engaged all that time. So you've been engaged as a civic activist for, for quite some time, uh, three decades in Montgomery County, and you're running for office now. You're running for the Montgomery County Council. Why now? Why now? Um, actually, I didn't think I was going to be running. Um, uh, Diana and I have been politically engaged forever, but uh, when I retired from my law practice at the end of March, I expected to accept a very attractive uh, job offer in the private sector. An Indian solar manufacturer had asked me to start their U.S. operations, which would have been really cool. It would have been very high risk, very high reward, but um, it's kind of a cliche these days, but it was actually Donald Trump that made me change my mind. Mm-hmm. And of course, we can all get really upset about the national scene. What does that have to do with Montgomery County? Um, I, it, it actually hit me, and I, I, happily I was wrong about this, but that um, his policies um, on uh, immigrants and undocumented people were going to play out here at the local county level. I actually thought, because he was threatening to cut off federal funds, 
that we were going to be in a big fight over that. And mm -hmm. as far as I was concerned, I wanted to be in that fight um, and protect the people who are least able to defend themselves. So that's what got me, actually got me into the race. Um, you know, the good part is that the federal courts totally shut it down on that. But um, yeah, that's how I got here. So on your website, one of the reasons that it says why you run is something that you just alluded to, which is that you want to oppose President Trump. Of course, President Trump is on the federal level and you're running on yeah. the most local level possible for county council. Uh, there's the concept of sanctuary cities um, mm -hmm. and the role in which federal immigration policy may be thwarted or at least not cooperated with at the local level. Could you elaborate on your stance and how you might actually on the council do something that could impact the policy in opposition to Trump? Sure. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think thwart would be the right um, verb to use because the federal, the supremacy clause of the Constitution uh, says that, that federal law trumps state law when there's, uh, when there's conflict. But that is not uh, Montgomery County's position, and and I also when we say sanctuary cities, that is a pretty imprecise term, and it can mean lots of different things, sort of ranging across a wide uh, a wide spectrum. Uh, I very much support Montgomery County's policy, which is basically not to cooperate with uh, immigration enforcement, um, and I don't. It's it's both. It would be both morally wrong to do so, in my view, and also practically. A big mistake when it comes to um, policing um, within within the community. Um, our policy in Montgomery County, uh, from ha from what it's been described to me, is um, we do not honor warrants from ICE because those are not criminal warrants; those are civil administrative uh, warrants. Mm -hmm. um, ICE does know, I believe, when somebody's going to be released, but that's because of. Um, uh, information in the federal uh, database, which we are obligated to put into. What we don't do is say, sure, we'll hold them till you want us to hold them. Uh, we will go out and help you rounding up people. We don't do um, we don't do anything like that. So somewhat enforcing local laws, but leaving the federal government to enforce federal laws. That's exactly right. That's in effect, that's their problem. So, I mean, but you would think that it's it's interesting that this is applicable particularly in the uh, in the immigration sphere because you don't ask I don't are there are there there doesn't seem to be many other areas of society where local governments are asked to implement federal law um, actually I'm sitting here trying to think of a single example there's lots of examples where states have delegated federal power in a regulatory sphere for example in clean water and clean air mm -hmm. but at the local level maybe they exist but I am not coming up I'm not coming up with a single example of that. So, yeah, it's, it's highly unusual. Let's jump into energy regulation. Sure. I know that's a big area of your professional career. Yeah. Uh, and there's, some, there's obviously concerns in Montgomery County around, about PEPCO, mm -hmm. um, uh, the power utility distributor uh, mm -hmm. in this area. Would you speak about just your path through energy regulation, perhaps starting with what you think ought to be done in Montgomery County, Maryland? Hmm. Well, what I would like to see in Montgomery County, Maryland, and in our state and nationally, is a strong move towards renewable energy. Mm -hmm. uh, we're doing that, um, not nearly as fast as I would like to see it done, but because I've spent my whole career in the electric industry, I'm also very aware of the technical obstacles and sort of the economic obstacles uh, to that and, and what, it really, what it really takes. For example... Um, 
one thing, you know, people talk about 100% renewable energy immediately. Mm -hmm. Well, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. Physically, you can't do that without significant um, commercial energy storage, big batteries. Mm -hmm. Now, batteries are beginning to be deployed commercially as what I'll call generation analogs, meaning a, a, a unit that will act like a peaking generator, meaning it can just discharge power, it can store power and then discharge it for a meaningful period of time, say like three hours or so. That would probably be a good benchmark of when now batteries are acting like, you know, functionally like generators. You have to have that before, for example, before you can go to 100% renewable energy. The other thing that people often don't realize is it's a mistake, and, and I might even part ways on some of my friends uh, on the environmental side about this. It's a mistake to think that uh, the economic opportunities for development of renewable energy are evenly distributed mm-hmm. uh, geographically. Why, why would they be? Um, wind concentrates in certain places. Some places are better for solar uh, energy than others. Um, and the other thing to think about solar energy is it requires a large amount of land area. I, I actually did a calculation because I was talking with um, you know, local activists here about this issue. And we were talking about, like, well, what would it take to, um, to have 100% solar energy uh, to serve Montgomery County's needs located in Montgomery County? And the answer is between 8 and 18% of the total land area of Montgomery County, which is a huge number and it varies between 8 and 18% because it depends upon the efficiency of the solar panels and you know that affects costs so it could be uh it d- depends somewhat upon staging so that could it could depend upon a lot of different things but that's a good number between 8 and 18% of the total land area of Montgomery County which if you think about it uh we don't have so we, you, unless you go to the Ag Reserve, which is something I would never, I would never support. You've proposed putting solar panels on landfills, and in the popular press, there's been the idea of having solar panels on roofs and replacing pavement on highways. Any thoughts on those? Uh, first of all, solar landfills. At, uh, I'm sorry, solar panels at landfills are an awesome idea. They've, they, in fact, they have become kind of a thing within the solar industry. Why? Because um, closed landfills. Are brownfield sites. You're never going to use them for housing. You're never going to use them for commercial activity, or at least not without a bit of problem. Uh, typically, they're located in places where the substitution of solar panels is not going to create a lot of, of um, you know, neighborhood impacts or something else like that. So it's a great idea. The um, and I, I have mentioned this: the closed Goody landfill, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, sort of uh, north of, of East Goody Drive and just to the west of um, I guess what is that South Lawn, um, is 110 acres. It would be a great place to locate a landfill. Uh, from talking to the county, it's on their list. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the interesting things about landfills is. Early in their years, they you know they're covered up, but they generate a lot of methane gas, mm-hmm. and you really have to um, let that go down uh, by flaring or even using it to generate electricity before you locate something there. But the Goody landfill has been closed for a while now, I think twenty years, and so its its uh, methane profile has decreased substantially. So I think the time is coming uh, when we're going to do that. And then um, you asked me uh, about roofs and streets. Oh, roofs. Um, well, obviously, we have rooftop solar uh, in, in ever 
greater levels of, of deployment, but we see a lot of new products coming down the road. For example, uh, Elon Musk has his, um, his solar panel shingles mm-hmm. that look exactly like slate. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of excitement in the marketplace about those because, you know, frankly, putting a solar panel on a roof, it, it just doesn't look that great. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but um, these, you can't tell they aren't roof shingles. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have no idea what the um, efficiency of those uh, is, but that's something exciting. Putting it on highways, um, sidewalks, putting on on the the rooftops of cars like the Tesla has. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all di- ideas that that are coming down the pike. And um, do, these, got, do these ideas pay for themselves? Uh, maybe yes, maybe no. Solar is still quite expensive, even even with the um, even with the decrease in the cost of solar cells. I mean, as compared to wind. It's still very expensive. I mean, wind, as an example, is, uh, depending upon how you measure it, close to parity with fossil fuel, like we're down in the $0.04 cents per kilowatt hour range, which is highly competitive at the wholesale uh, level. The The only issue, of course, being intermittency with wind. So but, one thing that uh, maybe listeners may not be aware of is that Pepco is a local power distributor, right. which means that power is generated elsewhere by other entities. That's Do you have right. any thoughts of importing renewable energy from other sources like Pennsylvania, offshore wind in Maryland? We should, we should never be against importation because that gets back to my point about, look, the, the, the good places where you can generate renewable energy are not geographically dispersed on an even basis. They mm-hmm. are going to be places. In the case of wind for Maryland, it's going to be either to the west in the Appalachian Mountains or offshore if we're talking about large wind concentration. And I will tell you right now, um, wind in the mountains tends to be ridgetop. And that tends to, if you're talking about masses of of wind facilities, that tends to really pose a viewscape problem. Mm -hmm. I, I think we all have to realize that there will always be the need for a balance. I mean, if... In other words, I'm saying, asking, if there's at least any impact on Viewscape, does that mean we don't build it? Mm-hmm. No, not necessarily. But if it's like a pervasive impact on Viewscape, maybe we say, ah, there's better places uh, to do that. That and impacts on bats and birds on, on ridgetops tends to make them not, you know, it's feasible. You can do it. We have done it. Uh, there's, there's places in Maryland and Pennsylvania, but I don't see that as the place we're going to be doing a lot of wind. Offshore, great place to do it. So, um, and that's where, and, and there's a huge resource out there, and we should, we should be pursuing that. I'm interested in your campaign. There's so many different policy pillars that you have. Uh, your campaign platform is, is the uh, common ground, to try mm-hmm. to find common ground. In fact, you have a quote from Pope John Paul XXIII, says, see everything, overlook a great deal, correct a little. Why does that resonate with you? What is your campaign all about? Okay, so um, I think there's a couple things philosophically. One is that politics, as it's historically been practiced in the country, perhaps even in the world, has always been about politicians presenting the world in uh, black and white terms, the conflict of, of good versus evil, um, when at least at the local level, if we look at our the most serious problems we face, in almost every instance there's a conflict of valid considerations. 
And we need, and I think the world's getting way too complex for us not to acknowledge that. Um, so finding common ground is about uh, recognizing, one, that we've had this divisiveness in politics that really doesn't help, uh, doesn't help things at all. And two, that there is a need for synthesis because this is not a case of the other side, whatever the other side is, is always wrong and that we are always uh, right. In fact, I'll tell you a quote that resonates more on this topic, uh, which is a, a quote from Learned Hand, who was one of the great American jurists, probably the greatest judge this, ever, this country ever saw, who never sat, uh, sat on the Supreme Court. And he said something very paradoxical, but, but captures this perfectly. He said, the spirit of liberty is not too sure it's correct. And what he meant by that is, we always, a function, in a functioning democracy, we always need to look at ourselves in the mirror first and ask ourselves, is that everything we say and believe, is that really right? Or might there be another side to this? Um, and that's not a prescription for a lack of conviction. Uh, it is not a prescription to say we always cut every loaf in half, although often that is the right answer. It's simply the insistence that we all uh, see the world as it is, not as we fear it to be, not as, it, as we want it, you know, wishfully want it to be, but as it is, and that we approach the process of political discourse uh, with another great phrase from the Declaration of Independence, a, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind. I think we need to work together. Uh, and you might say, wow, Bill, that's really naive. You know, politics has been ever thus. But, um, you know, in the Senate Energy Committee back in the day, uh, we didn't do politics. Um, in eight years working for the Senate Energy Committee, I saw at most four partisan votes the whole time. The rest of the time, uh, we debated the issues. In fact, from time to time, you know, probably three or four times during my tenure, I was asked to, um, by, you know, Republican staffer for Republican senator to staff that senator on a particular issue because maybe they, those folks didn't particularly, for whatever reason, didn't like the Republican staff. And of course I, I helped them uh, because this was all about substance. Are there any concrete examples that you have about the current Montgomery County Council or state legislature or, or even the Congress where there's inadequate compromise, where you would act differently? I'm trying to find a distinguishing feature about you and your candidacy. I'd rather not, well, first of all, I'd rather not get into I'm, I'm happy to talk about specific issues, but I would I'd rather council. not get into some of the acrimony that various council members took. But you don't need to go very far in terms of looking at, at recorded sessions of the council to see uh, one or more council members at each other's throats mm-hmm. and in a very, non, in a very unconstructive way. Mm-hmm. Um, that really doesn't help things. And not only that, in this upcoming election... There will be, at a minimum, four new council members, three at large and one in District 1, and, and conceivably even more. But that's a, that represents the opportunity to me to perhaps um, have a, a cultural change. I, I like to speak about, um, let's have a, a culture of evidence and a climate of civility, and that's, that's what I would always work for. And so some of the issues that you've raised... 
um, are traditionally not issues that go hand in hand uh, that would require half a loaf or some degree, fair degree of compromise. You've come out in support of a $15 minimum wage, but you also say that you're pro-business. Um, you have articulated your support for universal pre-K, um, but again, uh, that would need that would have a f- significant fiscal note. Sure. So, how do you reconcile these different views and sure. even find a compromise sure, sure. yourself? We, we got to go. We got to go specific when we start in, down this road. Um, Fifteen dollar minimum wage. I would not have supported the bill as originally introduced because um, I thought it was uh, definitely going to hurt small businesses mm-hmm. and ultimately not succeed in its purposes. Um, so I do support the bill as it was enacted because um, I think it provides enough of a time period um, for small businesses to to adjust. But this is a difficult topic, and I and I'm going to you know go a, a li- digress here a little bit. I I one of the critiques of of um, my critiques of the process of the $15 minimum wage was that everybody talked about the benefits Mm -hmm. and they are indisputable. Mm -hmm. Uh, They are substantial, but, and this was a, this is to me, this is a failure of policy of public policy discussion. There wasn't really a lot of meaningful discussion about the impact on small businesses. Now, clearly the votes weren't there for that reason, but we really need to get into it. I mean, and to listen to the debate, you would have said, oh, anybody who doesn't support an immediate $15 minimum wage uh, is, is totally anti-worker and just, uh, you know, money-grubbing, uh, gold-hoarding in favor of big business. Um, and that's really the kind of unhelpful um, Is it possible anyone would lose their job? Uh, under, under as a result of just making across the board fifteen dollar minimum. Wage. Oh, I would say, I would have said it would have been likely. Listen, I you know I'm kind of a I'm a policy wonk and a nerd, so I actually went and read the University of Washington study of the of the Seattle experience going from nine to eleven, as I call and then eleven to thirteen dollars, and I also read the University of uh, Cal Berkeley's. Uh, rebuttal of it. Uh, I will tell you, having read both those studies as well as a lot of other economic literature in this area, this is very, very hard uh, to model. And and but let's let's take it to just the level of logic because every single economist, including those who are very much you know pro fifteen dollars minimum wage, would concede that it is absolutely possible to go too far, too fast and create um, uh, economic harm, not just to small businesses, because they're most directly affected, but to their employees. Now, you were a small business owner as an entrepreneur yeah. uh, in the electric industry. Yeah. What were some of the greatest challenges facing you as a small business owner? Um, uh, yeah, I like to say I've, I've made uh, uh, policy and I've had to make a payroll. Um, for me, it was what we were doing. The issues weren't making the payroll because we were very small and we were basically all working for nothing. So um, that wasn't the issue. Um, uh, what I was doing was, um, in the first place, trying to do distributed generation. Um, distributed, distributed generation is this idea that instead of having major central station power plants that are uh, geographically remote from loads so that you have to have large transmission lines uh, delivering power. Instead, you have much smaller dispersed generation throughout the area of load consumption, Mm -hmm. 
and, and that creates an inherently more reliable system, and it also gives a lot of opportunity to develop alternative sources of energy like renewable energy. Yeah, does solar uh, panels actually demonstrate that concept? Yeah, they do. They're a form of, they're a form of distributed generation. So um, my partner and I were working in New York City to create what, what would have been the first, um, really one of the first large-scale deployments of distributed generation, and we... Um, what we realized was at, at this time, this is 2000, 2001, that New York was on the verge of blackout. Um, mm-hmm. Literally, it was, it could have been any day if, if the conditions um, uh, turned bad. And so, looking at that problem, uh, and this will sound uh, like dirty energy at first, but it, it actually works, it it's actually winds up being the opposite. Um, what we what we occurred to us was the fact that within the within New York City there's approximately 1,800 megawatts of standby diesel mm-hmm. generation, and it exists because if there's a blackout, uh, you need emergency generation in every office tower and every uh, uh, computer server farm. Uh, to kick on, to get people out of the building, and to keep the computers up. That would be distributed generation of yeah. fossil fuels. Yes, because it, that's like, you know, these are one and two megawatt units. Mm-hmm. But um, the the point we made, and, and I think everybody understood this in environmental, is in the environmental movement up there was, um, so what would you rather have? We have a blackout and 1,800 megawatts of diesel generation goes online, or... How about this? Instead, we have 30 megawatts of generation that stands ready in an only in an absolute emergency to be there to pick up load only at the tip, tip, tip of an emergency peak. And so you save a whole bunch of fossil fuel um, burning by By having by, by having just running a few of them. And that and that actually. Uh, I'll tell you, I mean, this is an interesting anecdote of how my life could have taken a totally different path. Um, that was a very workable, good idea. We successfully persuaded uh, the New York ISO, the independent system operator who operates the grid, to adopt the rules that will allow these generators to be capacity resources, uh, as well as, as by, by the well, as uh, other things that would simply drop load off of uh, the grid. So we developed that. We came up with all the rules um, and we we started talking to real estate owners. Um, doing it in office towers turned out to be difficult because when you turned those units on, you didn't pick up basically the way they're wired. You, you only picked up elevators, emergency lighting, and everything else went off. So that didn't work unless you rewired the building. But what worked, what was perfect, were server farms uh, because they you know they pick up a bunch of load these server farms use a lot of use a lot of juice and we actually um, approached JP Morgan Chase among others and they sort of said um, you know we understand that you you're basically two guys energy but we also understand that you guys invented this whole game mm-hmm. by the way these rules are still in place today they've been very highly successful um, they're called special case resources if anybody wants to look them up um, but uh, so we're going to go with you, uh-huh. and because we understand, you know, you're going to turn us into a profit center from a cost center. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would have made several million dollars a year, um, and we would have been off off to the races. So we're negotiating at an agreement. This was this is a process of about six months, and we walk in one day, and they've got long faces, and they say, "Guys, we can't do the deal." 
And you go, why? (laughs) God. Uh, They said, it turns out that we have a deal with Enron because we've been a big banker to Enron. And even though Enron has no intention of doing what you guys are doing, the contract, our legal folks are telling us, the contract is written in terms that give them the exclusive right to do it. So we would be in breach if we did this with you. And we were just uh, unbelievable. And And Enron blew up. well, that's that's the irony. It's just like, <laughs> literally, I guess it was probably four or five months later, Enron blew up. Yeah, um, but you couldn't but, go but, back to the deal. Well, we had run out of kind of runway. We we were living on fumes, and we needed to move on at that point. But, Bill, um, a final policy question for you: um, How does Montgomery County move towards a zero carbon footprint? Oh boy, um, lots of different ways. First of all, Montgomery County right now, in terms of its procurement of electric power, is already there, meaning Mm -hmm. they are, um, uh, my understanding is that we buy wind and solar power exclusively, which is, by the way, what Diana and I do here in our home. We're, you know, we're strictly uh, wind and solar. Costs a little bit more. Um, Just for your listeners, (laughs) this may not be clear to some of them how that works. This is not literally the wind and the solar power being transmitted to our home because electricity is fungible, but it's in terms of the overall accounting of the system, we're paying for the wind and the solar, and that's what Montgomery County is doing. But when it comes to our non-governmental consumption, uh, there's a lot of things we should be doing. One of the things we should be doing, and the county is already doing this and and going further, is people should realize some of the best low-hanging fruit is not on the supply side, it's on the demand side, meaning... Uh, energy conservation and energy efficiency are um, are big sources of reducing electricity use and therefore uh, carbon emissions. So there's a whole host of programs that the county has, uh, both some residential, but particularly on the commercial side. Um, so we should we should be doing more. We should be doing more of that. Uh, great. And Bill, we are approaching the end of this podcast. A final two part question. What's been motivating you to engage in public service over these decades, and what is the legacy that you hope to see at the end of your career? Um, honestly, Jordan, what motivates me is um, just service. I mean, that sounds maybe cheesy, but um, I, I'm, it's never been my ego doing this. you got to have a certain amount of ego to, to run for office, but um, whether I ran for office or not, I wanted to get back into public service after I retired. That's always been on my mind. But you don't have to run for office to be doing, to be involved in public policy and public service. Um, so for me, this is uh, really about service. Uh, if I'm elected to the county council, um, I have, I mean, I'll tell you my three big priorities. And if I can make any progress on them, I will be well satisfied. Um, the first is to grow jobs in the county. And that is for a very fundamental reason, uh, which is the fact we do not have the tax revenues that are sufficient to meet our needs. It's very clear when you look at projections going forward, we don't have the money. And frankly, if we don't have the money, the rest of these discussions are kind of irrelevant. Um, So we have to focus uh, on that. Uh, um, The second thing is traffic. Uh, We're choking on traffic and uh, we need to do a better job of addressing it. uh, I have an all of the above prescription, uh, focusing heavily on mass transit, but also uh, including uh, intersection improvements, advanced light signal technology, and in particular, uh, widening 270 um, uh, and the American Legion Bridge, including um, 
um, BRT on, on that. But third, and this may be um, the most important one, is, is education. We have a terrible problem with overcrowding in our schools, and that's principally a, an issue of um, getting capital dollars, a fair share of capital dollars from the state. Um, and that's going to be a hard struggle coming up. Uh, but the, the, the issue even more deep to my heart is the performance gap among our students between kids coming from poorer families and kids coming from affluent families. Um, to me, we have a moral obligation to the future. Um, our kids are the messages we send to the future. And if we are not educating them uh, for jobs in the 21st century, we have we've failed as, as a people. And one of the single biggest things uh, that affects student performance starts very early in life is just appropriate enrichment and socialization ages. And it's not just pre-K, which is really four-year-old, what I grew up calling nursery school, but it's zero to three as well what's often called uh, early childhood education. Um, there's too many families in this county who are struggling, parents working two and three jobs, and often childcare winds up being uh, plop the kids in front of television, family, friends, and neighbors. Arrangements which m some cases may be legal, often is illegal, um, but these kids uh, are not getting appropriate enrichment. We've got to do better in that and find a way to do that. So if I can do that, I will feel like I had some success. And that has been, this has been Bill Conway, Democratic candidate for Montgomery County Council at Large and former counsel in the U.S. Senate, a uh, law partner and an entrepreneur who speaks about uh, his support for renewable energies, importing renewable energies, uh, how he has made policy and payroll, and that informs his uh, uh, plans to create more jobs and economic development in Montgomery County, and his interest in uh, conflict of valid considerations, making sure that he considers all points of view and is willing to compromise, uh, that we have policy discussions that consider benefits and drawbacks. Bill, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Thanks, Jordan. It's been great to be with you. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com, iTunes, or your favorite podcast listening platform. And please join the conversation by calling 240-630-0380 or emailing engage at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thanks for listening.